Sarcoma Insight. Sarcoma Insight, this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors. Welcome everyone to this episode of Sarcoma Insight. Good to have you back, Elise. Thank you. Good to be back. Sorry I was uh, not here for the last episode. Um, I, uh... I don't think you have to apologize because you, you were having fun. You were on a nice trip. Uh, I did, yeah. Um, I took a much-needed vacation, so I, I did a little bit of a road trip with my partner to Glacier and Banff and Jasper in the cold, but it was uh, it was really nice. But good to be back. Um, but I know that you held down the fort without me, but good to be back here. We definitely have a very exciting episode today. Yes. So our previous episode was on osteosarcomas. We had Dr. Chris Collier with us. And we broke down uh, osteosarcoma for you guys and really what the steps are from your presentation all the way through treatment. And I think, you know, it's episode eight. Always feel free to go back and listen to that. And also, we have been receiving some comments uh, on uh, regarding our episodes and people wondering if we're going to be covering other sarcomas. Absolutely. We have had uh, so far, achondrosarcoma and osteosarcomas have been the only ones. And the question is if we are going to cover soft tissue sarcomas like synovial sarcoma, the answer is yes. Um, and we are working our way through each diagnosis. And so if the diagnosis is not on uh, the episodes yet. It is coming. It will be on the way. All right. So on today's episode, we have an exciting new kind of segment that we're going to be introducing. So this will be our first of many sarcoma stories segments. And in these kind of segments, we'll be speaking with sarcoma survivors and highlighting their unique experience along with their journey and their passions. And for today's episode, which is our first of this kind, we have the distinct pleasure and honor of speaking with Dr. Kurt Weiss. Uh, Dr. Weiss is an associate professor of orthopedics at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where he trained for residency as well. He's an orthopedic oncologist, and among his many roles, he is the director of the Musculoskeletal Oncology Laboratory and the vice chair of translational research in the department. As I mentioned previously, he did his orthopedic residency here as well at the University of Pittsburgh, and his fellowship training was at the University of Toronto. He treats and researches sarcomas and is dedicated to improving lives for individuals with a diagnosis of sarcoma. So welcome, Dr. Weiss. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for the wonderful inv- invitation. Um, this, is, this is really exciting, and I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are doing it. Incidentally, um, going to Banff was still the best family vacation we ever took. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet it was. Now, we went in the summer. Yeah. Um, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, Banff was was really beautiful. So yeah, I hope everyone gets the chance to experience it someday. It's it's really wonderful there. But well, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Yeah, I'll have to add Banff to my list of <laughs> travel destinations. List of places to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so I think Dr. Weiss, part of this is really trying to get some of our listeners to connect. Um, and connect with us, connect with you. So you want to give us a little bit about, you know, sort of where you're from and uh, upbringing. I know you, you Notre, Notre Dame, Bone Doc is your Instagram. So um, I'm, I'm actually from Pittsburgh. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very boring in that regard. Uh, uh, born and raised here. Um, I'm a sixth generation Pittsburgher on my mother's side. Um, my, uh, on my mom's side, we have uh, uh, ancestors who uh, fought for the uh, Union Army for the Pennsylvania Volunteers in the Civil War. 
know, all the way all the way back to there. Uh, um, family who cast cannon for the Union Army, and um, you know, so so we go way back on my mom's side. Uh, but I grew up here in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, about oh 10, 15 minute drive from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, so from that regard, it's uh, it's not a super exciting story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I mean, Pittsburgh every year uh, it might not be so boring because it's uh, every year it ends up being like top ten best up and coming cities. So. Yes. Um, uh, we've, we've been very fortunate in Pittsburgh, um, not to get too far afield, but, um, uh, when heavy industry went away in the eighties, the city was able to really reinvent itself with education and medicine and finance and tech, um, having the university of Pittsburgh here and Carnegie Mellon university and, uh, the other great universities, uh, really, really was helpful. And, uh, so we found a way to thrive in a not awesome environment for a post-industrial city. So, yeah, very fortunate. Wow. And it sounds like you have many roles, uh, you know, in your current position. Do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe yeah. your, your lab or, or your, your role? Sure. So, so I, I, uh, I wear a few hats. I have a, I have a few jobs. Um, I am an associate professor at, in the School of Medicine, and uh, uh, I, I am an orthopedic oncologist. Uh, you're, you're right about that. I operate on uh, adults and children. Um, I also uh, direct the Musculoskeletal Oncology Laboratory, which is uh, just about 100% devoted to understanding how uh, metastasis works in musculoskeletal tumors. Um, you know, none of our patients get into trouble because of, of a tumor on their arm or their leg. You and I got a pretty good answer for that, don't we? Uh, where things don't go so well is when uh, the sarcoma spreads to uh, the lungs. Uh, that's that we we don't have, and and quite frankly, have never had a great answer for that. So that's what my uh, laboratory is is devoted to, trying to figure that out. Um, so typical work week is Monday adult OR, Tuesday clinic, when every other Wednesday, every third Wednesday, children's operating room down the street at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And Thursday and Friday, I'm supposed to be in the lab. And I'm saying supposed to be because it doesn't always work out that way. You know, uh, we, we, you know, all of us, uh, you, you know how it is. Uh, we, we look after sick people and when they need you, they need you. So um, luckily, I have a really wonderful team in the lab that helps to keep move, things moving forward, even when I'm not there. Yeah, and I think something we've discussed in our episodes and is the theme of oncology in general is having a really good team is is critical. And, and that team involves people who you wouldn't always necessarily think of either, but that that team is huge and there's so many different levels of that, but it's definitely important that in every aspect of our jobs and then patients and their journey um, from diagnosis to treatment and, and so on. It's, Teamwork it's, is, is key. Yeah. It's funny that you say that, Elise, because um, just yesterday in clinic, when I was um, dropping some, some bad news on a, a very nice family, um, I, I was ex talking about precisely that. Like, it takes a whole army of people to look after one patient with one sarcoma. And, and I'm just one of the many moving parts. And you're going to meet this friend of mine and this friend of mine. And we're all going to work together. Um, to uh, give you the best outcome possible. And I also 
um, as, as, as you guys go through, you don't have quite as many gray hairs as I do, but you're, you're going to steal bits and pieces from your different teachers. So uh, I, I steal from Pete Ferguson um, and I say, you're going to forget most of what we talk about today. That's fine. There are three words you got to remember, treatable and curable. That's all you got to remember about sarcoma for today. We'll talk about the rest later. Yeah. And coincidentally, uh, Peter Ferguson is a mentor of mine as we did the same uh, fellowship uh, at the University of Toronto. Uh, but um, yeah, so um, just a quick side, a quick aside, we do, we're talking about teams. Uh, we will be working on getting other members of the sarcoma team as uh, to come on as guests on the show. And so uh, we'll update you guys as we uh, get along with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really great to be able to tell everyone about what, what all the different members of the team do for, for patients with sarcoma. Um, but so for many of our episodes focused on topics related to sarcoma, we, we talk about the presentation and diagnosis and treatment. We kind of have a usual flow where we're going through these topics, but obviously today is going to be a little bit different. And, and you have a very unique perspective being someone who has been both a patient and now on the opposite side, on the treatment team side of patient for patients with sarcoma. So do you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about your story, about how your presentation of, of cancer was diagnosed and what that time was like? Sure, sure, sure. Of course. Um, so I do not come from a medical family. Um, we're, we're all engineers, um, which is where I thought I was headed. And um, I was 15 years old, uh, end of my freshman year of high school in May of 1989. Uh, please don't tell me uh, how old you were or if you were even born. Uh, but anyway, spring of 1989, I was 15 years old, freshman in high school, and uh, I was in the middle of swim season, and we were running in gym class. And uh, I was, I, I had played football for uh, for five years. And um, I was fairly quick, and I couldn't understand why why I was so slow. And then I it, I figured out that it was well because my right shin was hurting me, and um, well, it it must be an athletic injury, right? Because I'm a I was a two sport athlete and uh, all all these other activities, and so I would just take some uh, ibuprofen and go on my way. Well, it didn't get better. And uh, I started to feel like I maybe had a lump there. And I guess I complained about it enough that my mother said that I wasn't allowed to go mountain climbing with the Boy Scouts until I got my leg checked out. So to humor the old lady, I, I went to the sports medicine doctor because it must be a sports medicine problem, right? And um, he took x-rays in his office and said, you know, Kurt, there are some things about your x-ray that I don't quite understand. I want you to go see a friend of mine down at the university. Your appointment's for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Do not be late. So that was Dr. Jack Fela um, saved my life that day. And he did tell me a little bit of a lie, though, because he knew exactly what he was looking at. And uh, the next morning, uh, we went and met Dr. Mark Goodman. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, and he looked at my x-rays and examined me and heard my story, night pain, 
whole, whole nine yards uh, and classic x-rays. And he said, Kurt, I think you have a textbook example of osteosarcoma. And my dad said, Dr. Goodman, that sounds like bone cancer. And he said, Mr. Weiss, that's exactly what osteosarcoma is. And if, uh, if Kurt's lucky and the cancer hasn't already spread to his lungs, he has a 65% chance of being alive in five years. And he will probably need to lose his uh, leg from above the knee. That was a bad day. Uh, and uh, certainly from a non-medical family, like kids don't get cancer. This is bonkers. Why, this, this can't possibly be happening. Uh, and began the whirlwind of uh, meeting a medical oncologist, um, Dr. Mike Woolman, who I'll also talk about, and uh, getting staged and finding that I did indeed have metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis. And uh, luckily, we weren't in a medical family because uh, the, the three of us, we were too dumb to know how bad that was. And uh, I started on uh, chemotherapy right away. Uh, the protocol has not changed a whole lot since, uh, since 1989, 1990. I, uh, I did have some additional drugs, which aren't given so much anymore. I had the BCD protocol, which is uh, bleomycin, cytoxin, dactinomycin. Um, in addition to high-dose methotrexate, uh, adriamycin, and cisplatin. Uh, I also had uh, vincristine. I do not think that that is given anymore uh, as part of the protocol. But otherwise, the backbone of uh, uh, adriamycin, high-dose methotrexate, cisplatin was pretty much the way they did business in 1989. And I had the 10 weeks of chemotherapy. And then I had an osteoarticular allograft done by Mankin in Boston, who incidentally is a Pittsburgher. Uh, he was born and raised in Pittsburgh, went to Pitt undergraduate and medical school. And uh, interesting thing about Mankin, man, he was, he was the head of, he was the chair or the president uh, of every important orthopedic organization that exists in the world. And uh, he was proudest of being in the pit med class of 1953. He talked about that nonstop. He had such wonderful friendships and experiences in, in med school. He, he could have been the president of the United States and he would have introduced him as himself as Henry Mankin, University of Pittsburgh Med School class of 1953. In any case, I had my surgery with Mankin in, in July. And then in September, I had, uh, I got this guy, when they uh, opened my chest and I had a thoracotomy to remove uh, the lung metastases. And so uh, I had recovering from that surgery, went back on chemotherapy and I was just about done with my maintenance chemotherapy. And um, uh, a couple of very bad things happened. Number one, my, my wound on my leg fell apart thanks to the adriamycin. Uh, and that was the first of many surgical complications I had. But even a much bigger deal than that was that while I was on chemotherapy, I had the development of new lung metastases. So bad, right? If you're, you don't need an advanced degree in anything to understand that if you're taking powerful medicine to keep a, a bad thing from happening and the bad thing happens anyway, medicine's probably not working so good. So 
Um, however you want to look at that, either I failed chemotherapy or it failed me, that's what happened. Uh, and these were very, very dark days for my family. Uh, my my uh, medical oncologist, Mike Woolman, said, from this point on, guys, we're making it up as we go along, which is, which is not really what you want to hear from your medical oncologist. Um, but but it's, it's still the case to a large extent, isn't it? Like we, we really are a bit of a loss when, when kids have recurrent disease and when they have refractory metastases. Like if, if you can operate, you do operate, you, you take them out. But other than that, like what, what chemo do you give? Do you give chemo? It's, it's still so much of a black box and, it, and that hasn't changed since 1990. In any case, uh, my parents were kind of taken aside by themselves and said, you know, look, Frank and Joanne, uh, this isn't going well. And Kurt could very well go downhill quickly. So you guys should make plans for that. So uh, a, a burial plot was, was purchased for me next to my great-grandparents. Um, and the, they started working out the details of my funeral mass. Um, so this, this was a bad time. This was a very dark time for my family. But out of that darkness came a ray of hope uh, from my sister Gretchen. She read an article in the Allentown Morning Call, uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania Morning Call, uh, about an experimental chemotherapy, an experimental treatment that was going on at MD Anderson in Houston. Now, I don't suppose either one of you have ever uh, seen the Allentown Morning Call, but um, it is not the Wall Street Journal. And why in the world they should have had an article about a clinical trial about an obscure disease that nobody's ever heard of, it was Providence. It was Providence. So, uh, and this was in the days before internet, this is 1990, and my sister clips out the article and mails it to my parents. What do you guys think? So we called Dr. Kleinerman and spoke with her, and uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Woolman uh, called Dr. Kleinerman and spoke uh, with her, and we, and we said, you know what, not having any other great options, uh, let, let's go ahead and try the, the clinical trial. So we packed our bags. We went to Houston. I spent, spent the summer there getting um, MTPPE, which is uh, miramil tripeptide phosphatidylethanolamine, um, which uh, now is uh, being used wholesale in most countries in the world, uh, unless you're in the U.S. or Canada. Um, and the craziest thing happened. It worked. And the experimental treatment worked. And I've been uh, uh, sarcoma-free uh, since then. And that was about 26 years ago. So uh, that, that, was, uh, that was the way that went. And I might have been done with osteosarcoma, but it wasn't done with me. Uh, my allograft uh, became infected. And, uh, you know, the, you guys know the way infected allografts go. No place good. And uh, debridement, 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 megaprosthesis, lat free flap, high dose uh, antibiotics times three, C diff times three. No, it, it wouldn't go away. And, For our and after C, C diff is uh, that's a, um, it's really a diarrheal uh, disease where you have uh, clostridium infection in the abdomen. It's, it's really terrible. 
um, I can't imagine having a C diff infection. Yeah, it's it is no it is no joke, Izu. It is uh, don't don't get C diff. Um, I'll try to avoid it. And, and fi- finally, when the infection came back for the millionth time, I said, I, "I'm now a, a junior at Notre Dame, and I've spent." You know, every, every three months I'm leaving school to go have a, a big operation. And I said, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. And Dr. Goodman and I decided mutually, I had just been elected president of the band and say what you want about Notre Dame, but Notre Dame is the only place in the world where a, a, a kid who can't march gets elected the president of the band. But that, that's what happened. I was elected band president and, uh, we said, okay, we're going to fulfill my duties for the football season. And then at the holiday break, I'm going to have my leg amputated. And I almost didn't make it. Um, I, my, my leg started hemorrhaging badly uh, during finals week of all times. And I remember Dr. Good, Dr. Goodman and I were talking almost every day at that point. And uh, he said, Kurt, if I, if I got to come up there and carry you to your finals, you're going to finish. Um, and, and I did finish and I, and I had my amputation surgery in 1996 and, uh, uh, finished, finished at Notre Dame. I did March every game of my senior season on my prosthesis and, uh, um, took a gap year to finish a research project and then got into Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and, uh, residency at Pitt fellowship at Toronto. And here we are. So that was in, in very succinct uh con- condensation um that was the clinical part now i didn't talk at all about the research part of my journey but that that's only by request right um and we we can definitely sort of unpack uh, at least i have a, i know i have a few questions do you, i don't know if you have any at least oh um, I, i'm i'm sure yeah i mean that was an incredible story yeah i'm sure we have a lot of questions we can uh we can ask but easy yeah go go ahead and sure there's a lot away. to talk about <laughs> Probably the first thing I have is something that um, you know a lot of our listeners and families and patients probably struggle with, and it was how did you navigate all of this? You know, you're trying to, you know, you're you're in school, you know, you're finishing high school, you're going to college. How are you navigating this? How is your family uh, navigating this process? How how you know how were you guys able to make things work and make it happen? Because you had to show up to appointments, you had to do all these, even while being your responsibilities. Well, uh, luckily, it, it's a great question, Izu. And um, luckily, um, my my mother's a teacher, and my dad's an engineer. And um, when when I was diagnosed, mom said, "Well, I'm I'm done with that." And we, you know, we were in a position where financially we could afford to do that. That's not the case with everybody. In fact, that's probably not the case with most people. So I think we were very spoiled that, that my mom could sort of just hang it up with her, with her teaching career and do those things that you mentioned, these who go to appointments with me and, and stay overnight when I had my chemo and um, stay overnight with me when I was having my operations. And stay with me in Houston when I'm getting an experimental treatment, you know? So um, it, it was a toll on my whole family. I have a older brother who is in undergraduate at the time and an uh, older sister 
uh, who had just graduated from Notre Dame. And uh, I'm sure it, you know, it, it was a time where we really could have used that extra paycheck from my mom, but we, we had to make do, we had to figure it out. And um, I'm, I'm still kind of in awe of my parents uh, of how they were able to keep it together uh, for me, Izu. Um, because I, I don't think that that is the, um, the standard way it works. I, I think that uh, we were spoiled in a lot of ways. And it was, you know, mom always stayed with me. And there was always something that happened. It was a good idea that I had a parent there. Um, maybe a medication mix-up or a, a misunderstanding or, or this or that. Or, or There was always a good reason why mom was there. Um, and, and I was very, very fortunate to, to be able to have a parent, um, uh, be there for me like that. Yeah. And that's really great to have that support system from your family. And, um, and we know we're, we're trying to have some episodes about other support systems that are available to, to patients as well, that connect people with other patients who are going through similar issues or even for family members as well. Cause I know, obviously it was a tough journey for you, but your family having was also there with you and going through it at the same time. And so um, I think it's really great to be able to connect patients to resources. We'll try to have some links in the in the episode as well for that. But good, um, good. A, a, a couple questions yeah. I had. You kind of touched on some of the side effects related to some of the treatments that you received. Um, both that are expected and some that aren't necessarily expected, but just kind of coincide with both the surgery and chemotherapy together. Um, I I don't know if you you touched on some of it, if you'd be able to expand on a a little bit of the other things that some of the patients who are going through a similar diagnosis might be able to expect. Sure. Um, Well, uh, luckily, so when uh, I'm old enough that I did this before uh, Zofran and Phenergan were invented, so the way you were, uh, your anti-emetic, my anti-emetic, I am not making this up, was Thorazine. True as God. That's what they gave kids. And you, you know, when you woke up, you're obviously sick as heck and, and you know, puking all over the place. Um, but that was, it was pretty rudimentary. And, and thank goodness we have a little bit better tools these days to manage nausea and vomiting. Um, I, I know that still happens. That hasn't gone away completely, but it's better. Um, I, I lost all my hair. Um, uh, I, I don't know that we've uh, come up with a good answer for how cruel um, chemotherapy is to things that are trying to heal. Uh, post-operative wounds, um, you know, you guys know what it's like when, when you have a patient and you're, you've done your surgery and they're doing okay, but it's time to go back on chemo. And you know, you have to put them back on chemo because that's, what's going to save them. But oh, it's, it's just, it's so painful. Like hold on tight here and, and hope that, that we don't have any problems with the, with the incision. And that is not a nut that we have cracked. Um, that's, that's a real problem. Treating one risk or complication for another in some ways with a lot of this uh, coordination. Interestingly, on on the the research side of things, um, a, a recurrent theme is that uh, all of my uh, drugs that I'm ex- experimenting with that specifically target osteosarcoma metas- metastases, 
they all have to show that they can work well with adriamycin. Why? Because adriamycin works. It's terrible, but it works. We know this, right? And so there, there are enough old codgers like me that are never going to abandon doxorubicin wholesale uh, like that. So I think the, the pathway's got to be, okay, let's add some things. Maybe we can start to decrease the amount of doxorubicin, uh, the amount of adriamycin. And, and I think that that is going to be our pathway forward. But, you know, you, you love it, but you hate it, right? You're, you're, you're precisely right, Elise. It's that, that tension, that ambivalence that we have when we talk about chemotherapy because we know it does something, uh, but, it, but it's a heck of a price to pay and we need to do better. Um, and obviously your, your journey was, was long and in a lot of ways is still ongoing too. Um, and I'm sure a lot of this was, was unexpected and every step of the way there's new information, new complications, hurdles to overcome. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that was a difficult process, um, to go through and just feeling like it, you know, there's one more thing, one more thing. And, and, I don't know if you'd have any advice both for our listeners and for us as providers of how to help patients navigate that, because I think we try to do a good job of preparing patients for what the road ahead looks like. But obviously every patient's experience is very unique and individual, which we try to emphasize every single uh, episode and cancer in particular, that's, that's the case. But how did you, what do you think would be helpful? What have you learned from that experience for um, for patients and providers to take away. From. So uh, you, good, very good questions, Elise, and I'm glad you asked. Um, I, I think you'd be surprised that um, it, it, it sometimes it seems from our perspective, like, oh, geez, you know, um, this thing went wrong and this thing went wrong and this thing went wrong. And our patients surprise us because they take it all in stride. Like, how are they doing that? And, and I think the answer is this, because when you are in the midst of fighting a life-threatening illness, life is pretty straightforward. You, um, you put your head down and you do what you got to do that day to see the next sunrise and you repeat as many times as needed. And it, it does tend to make one a little bit cold, uh, a little bit robotic, um, but it works and it's necessary. And that's the way most of our patients go through their day to day for as long as we continue to beat them up with, with our surgeries and our treatments. And uh, so, so life is actually pretty straightforward. What I would like to do a better job at is survivorship, meaning, okay, the, Immediate threat to life and limb has passed, and there are no more surgeries directly on the, the calendar, and the scans have been coming back favorable for quite some time now, and there's, you know, I'm, I've stopped taking chemotherapy, so now all the doctors, and, and, and this is where we need to do a better job, all the doctors are all high-fiving each other and patting ourselves on the back, we're the best doctors ever, you know, hooray, and we have reason to be happy, we have reason to be celebrating. And so do our patients. But like I said before, you might be done with sarcoma, but it ain't done with you. And how do you put the, the pieces of a life back together 
when the pieces are all different sizes and shapes now? You know, how, how do you do that? How do you, you figure out your new normal? And um, it's a painful process and it's a hard process. And I don't know about you guys, but I've seen this in 100% of my patients. They go through this. Like, yeah, I'm grateful. I'm happy. Of course I'm happy. But it's not perfect. And, and it's not the same. And I am different and life is different. And how do I sort of, uh, I, I was derailed. How do I get back into sort of a uh, homeostasis um, for a word that you and I understand? And, and for people who've never heard that word, this is sort of the steady state function of your body. The, the processes that have to happen to, to to keep your motor running smoothly as a human machine. Well, that was disrupted hard for many months or even years. And when that immediate threat is over, how do you get that back? And I think all of our patients struggle with that. And I struggle with it too, because when I, when I see this happening in my, in my patients, I'm able to say, to recognize it and say, I see this hard thing happening to you and you're trying to figure out what your life is going to be like now. And it, it's not the same and it can't be the same and it won't ever be the same. So, so how do you make that good? That's really hard. And besides being able to, to recognize that and say, you're going through this really hard thing, it's going to get better. Just stick with it. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to shepherd people through that in an effective way besides recognizing it and assuring people that it's going to get better with time. So I, I don't feel very useful in those moments, guys. Um, and, and so hopefully that's something that the three of us can learn to do better uh, as, as we go through this journey as physicians. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think what you've kind of alluded to and that places are trying to create is, as you mentioned, survivorship clinics or, or places where there's teams of rehab physicians and uh, nurse practitioners, other providers who can help essentially shepherd patients to the right person that they need to see for these unique problems that might come up in these long stretches of like you said, having gotten past the immediate life-threatening time of their life, but that, yeah, there's other long-term side effects or other things that have come up that they need to, to go through. And I think it's great that we're starting to try to, it seems like, uh, turn more attention to that and that hopefully these survivorship clinics will be one piece of the puzzle to help pay more attention to that. Um, but yeah, we definitely have a long way to go. And yeah, hopefully that's something where we have, research and learn more from each other at, at meetings like the MSTS, where we all finally got to see each other in person for the first time in a while recently to, to talk about this and, um, and figure that out. Cause you definitely know better than, than either of us, what the importance of that is. And counseling, right, Elise? I mean, absolutely. I, yeah. I probably should have been in therapy starting at age 15. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and it's only recently that I've figured that out. It just wasn't a thing when I was a teenager, it was, it was not a thing that, that me and my family uh, knew about. It helps. It really, really does. And um, uh, 
unfortunately, and, and this will make sense in a second, unfortunately, um, we, we've got a lot of uh, uh, veterans out there because we've, you know, been at, been at war continuously for a couple of, for almost a generation. I think that what our sarcoma patients um, experience is probably not so dissimilar to what people experience when they're coming back from a theater of war, right? Because because they're they're no longer the same, and it's uh, I'm sure that that breaks down in about a million ways. But maybe it's not such a bad analogy, and um, for better or worse, our uh, 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 counseling community has, has a lot of experience with those issues. So maybe those can be brought to bear to the service of our sarcoma patients. Yeah. And I think, I think a, a big first step is us admitting and identifying that there is an issue or weakness in our approach to treatment. Um, and I think that's definitely a huge step. And, and, and the next steps will be um, finding ways and measures to address that. So I have um, so a couple of uh, other questions for you. You gave us sort of the sort of that period of time. Uh, since then, have you had? Uh, you know, you you probably were followed for about ten years. I'm guessing. Uh, in this time, you developed. Uh, it's kind of impressive. You remember the names of all your uh, treating physicians, um, and so you developed kind of a relationship with them over time, and and that's excellent. I, I think a lot of our patients end up becoming very close with us. Uh, so well. actually, uh, I, I can I can do you one better, Isu, because um, uh, Dr. Goodman was my partner for nine years. Um, he, he, was, <laughs> he was my teacher at Pitt, and uh, he just he just retired wow. um, a little over a year ago. And uh, 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 operating with my surgeon and 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 seeing patients and, and looking after sarcoma patients with my surgeon. I don't know what the rest of my life is going to be like, but those nine years, they were really special. They were really special um, getting to operate with Dr. Goodman. And I shared patients with Mike Woolman, who looked after me. So that, that was cool, too. Um, and uh, I also made just as cool as that, maybe a little bit cooler in some ways, is that um, after the first year of medical school, I spent 10 weeks in Dr. Kleinerman's lab um, uh, doing research elbow to elbow uh, with the uh, same scientists that had developed the experimental treatment that saved my life 10 years before that. Wow. And if that wasn't the coolest thing ever, and she is still That's my amazing. most important scientific mentor. She's, she's my scientific mom. You know, when, when I, she's the first person I call when I get a paper accepted or rejected. I get a grant. I'm calling Dr. Kleinerman. I'm emailing Dr. Kleinerman. We, I, I would say we talk about once a month and I, you know, she's, she's family and, and she's uh, uh, still my most important scientific mentor. And so did your, your, I know you said your family was really medical. Was this the experience that sort of pushed you to go into medicine? And Yeah. So I, I thought forever that I was going to, uh, be an engineer like like my dad, my uncles, and you know my sister and everybody. Um, but the uh, I had always been okay at science, and I was fascinated with the aspects of my care. Like this chemo, like this chemotherapy. How how is this supposed to work? How how what what do we think is happening there um, biologically? 
and um, you know, show me the X-rays. What what is that all about? Tell, teach me, teach me. And uh, I started seeing. Now you can't do this anymore, but um, I started seeing surgery with Dr. Goodman when I was 17 years old, and um, I uh, I thought for the longest time that I was going to be a pediatric uh, oncologist because why in the world? What, what would what stupidity would make a, a guy with a amputation think that he can be an orthopedic surgeon like that's that's more than a little dumb and uh so i thought forever i was going to be a pediatric oncologist but then i spent uh, a week uh, a month with dr woolman who i adore and boy it, w- it was hard to come to grips with the fact that it just wasn't for me and uh, so I was, I was a little bit adrift, like, you know, geez, if, if God didn't make me to be a pediatric oncologist, what the hell am I going to do? And then I, I spent some more time with Dr. Goodman and I did my orthopedics rotations. And I said, well, oh, okay, I'm, I'm home. I, this, this feels right to me. And then within orthopedics, getting to operate with Dr. Goodman and Dr. McGow and, and help really look after patients with uh, bone cancer, um, in all its terrible forms. Uh, again, I said, I I'm home. Th- this, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, uh, there are still a lot of challenges. I still think I'm a little bit crazy for thinking I can do this job with one leg, but it's, it, it's going okay. And when you got teachers like, like, uh, Pete Ferguson and, and Jay wonder and Bob bell and uh, all my teachers at the university of Pittsburgh, you know, how, yeah, that really sets you up for success. Um, yeah, I do have a question for you. Uh, yeah. You were in the band. Like, did you play any instruments? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, my, my main instrument is tenor saxophone. Um, I, I also play the alto, but mostly tenor. And um, when that became a really big part of my life, Izu, and I'm glad you asked that because, you know, when, uh, with an osteoarticular allograft, even under the best of circumstances, contact sports are out, right? With, with, even with a mega prosthesis, contact sports are out. So I, uh, I really looked more to my music to sustain me and became a very, very uh, big and important uh, part of my life. In fact, um, when the time came to make a decision about what was I going to ask for for my Make-A-Wish trip, um, I got a new tenor saxophone and I wanted to play it with the Notre Dame band at whatever bowl game they went to that year. And, uh, the, the people, cause my sister was in the band at Notre Dame. She's, she's a clarinet player. And, uh, the people at Make-A-Wish were very funny. They said, uh, you know, Kurt, we can get you the, the instrument. That's, that's not hard. Um, we can do nothing to ensure that Notre Dame's going to a bowl game this year. we'll be fine we'll be fine so my my whole family went to the uh orange bowl in miami in 1990 and i i played uh my new saxophone with the notre dame band and you know fast forward i ended up being the 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 president of university bands my senior year even though i had to leave early to get my leg amputated um and uh one of the great joys of my life is that my son plays my saxophone Oh, wow. That's pretty great. Like, you know, there are, first of all, you know, to take a step back, 
there aren't that many cytoxin babies around, right? Like I, we didn't ever think I was going to have kids and, and, you know, Connor thought otherwise and uh, that he uh, became a musician and played my saxophone. Just the coolest thing. That's really amazing. That's a, such a cool story. Yeah. Thank I you think, so much for sharing that. With yes. Us. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> you are truly an inspiration. Um, Dr. Weiss, would you have any words uh, for patients, families, whether they're at diagnosis or in the various stages of their treatment or follow-up? So have any words to share with them? I know you've shared your, your story with us. I, I would share three things. And they're, they're not just for my patients. They're, they're for, for us as a community of people who are um, uh, blessed enough to look after these patients. So um, the first thing I would say is uh, from old Pete Ferguson, treatable and curable. You should start this road with the expectation that it's going to be hard, but with the expectation that the numbers are with you. We, we are, we're winning more than we're losing and you should hold on to that. Um, for you guys, for, for the patients and for you guys, it is never a good time to lose hope. It is never a good time to take away somebody's hope. Okay? I'm, I'm not big on never. I'm not big on always. But it's never a good time to lose hope. Um, a, a lot went wrong for me. A lot went wrong. Presenting with metastases, that was bad. Um, uh, ha having the progression of disease while I was on chemotherapy, that was really bad. You guys know how bad that was. Um, but, but we never lost hope. It might've been a fool's hope, but you never can tell when, when breaks are going to start going your way. So hold on to that hope. Um, and, and don't uh, let go of that. And, uh, finally, and, and you talked about this a little bit before Elise, my mom always said, all I wanted that first day when we met Dr. Goodman was to, to be able to see and touch somebody who had survived this. Like, show me somebody who's come out on the other side of this so that I know this is possible, right? So, and, and what, so what you said, Elise, was spot on. What we need to be doing, if we're not doing it already, is saying, this is a terrible day for you. To, to our patients when we're diagnosing them and, and to their families. This is awful. This is a terrible day. This might be your worst day ever for the rest of your life. But there are other people who are with us and are doing great, and they had terrible days too. And here's some names and here's some phone numbers. Why don't you go ahead and give this guy, give this gal a call? We really need to do a better job at that because. Um, there, there's nothing like hope that you can, you can look at and touch and talk to. And so giving that gift to our patients, I think would go a long way. I get to cheat, but, but um, other, other people don't get to cheat. So um, doing, doing a better job of that is, is something that I would like to see us as a community of orthopedic oncologists um, do better for our patients. Yeah, definitely. And those are, that's definitely words of wisdom. And um, I think both Izu and I learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Um, it's 
you know, definitely not easy hearing the full story of someone who's been through this and especially hearing how difficult that journey can be. But knowing that you came through the other side, I think is the the takeaway that, like you said, there's going to be bad days and there may be more bad days, but there's always that hope that there's that good day in the future. And um, not everyone's going to come out of a diagnosis of sarcoma and become someone who treats sarcomas in the future, but everyone's going to have a different story. And But it's amazing what you've done. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your story with our, our listeners and, and patients around around the world. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And now, you know, I think people who listen to the show, they, um, they can listen to this episode of someone who's, you know, survived osteosarcoma. And I, I think it's just excellent and fantastic. Um, well, you guys, it, it's such a, uh, such a treasure to be asked to spend uh, this time with you. Uh, I look at it. So let me tell you what inspires me. Um, yes, please. I, yeah. I am, um, I am an osteosarcoma survivor who is alive because he participated in an experiment. That's, that is the truth. I, I am alive because I, I participated in that experimental treatment. The fact that I do sarcoma surgery and sarcoma science, I do not find that inspiring in the least. I'm supposed to be inspired by this stuff, right? I'm supposed, if, if, if I'm not fired up to do sarcoma research and treatment, exactly who should be. So what inspires me? You guys, okay? People who have never been touched by these diseases the way I have, but get up every day and bring it in the operating room, in the clinic, in the laboratory, and bring that same passion that, that I have to the research and the treatment of our patients. I find that tremendously inspiring. So I want to thank the both of you for being the both of you and for, for getting my butt out of bed every day because you guys are what gets me going. Thank you very much, Dr. Weiss. But- and thank you again for coming on the show. Um, it's been a, a really wonderful episode. Hopefully we'll have more like it with other survivors of sarcoma on the show for this kind of segment. Um, but this was a great way to really kick off this. So thank you so much. Uh, easy you are welcome. words for us or Dr. Weiss. We always close with this. It's, it's important to note that every patient's case is unique. Um, if you would like uh, for more information, remember to always check out the links in our episode description. Um, next episode, we'll be having one of our uh, team members who plays a role in the team. Uh, as a guest, we will have a pathologist on with us, Dr. Erica Cow. And I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Sarcoma in- Insight. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast uh, and follow us uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Sarcoma Insight Podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Wise. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Have great holidays. Thank you. You as well. Sarcoma Insight.